You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. All right, so welcome to part two of our conversation with Chris Costa. You can check out his full bio by looking at last week's part one. Just to give you a basic outline, uh, Mr. Costa spent a career both in the military and inside government, working on human intelligence operations, special operations, and counterterrorism. So welcome back, Chris. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us again on SpyCast. Thank you. Great to be here. So we finished off essentially with the late 1990s in your operation work inside Bosnia. Um, a lot of times we have people who uh, have had a career in intelligence. Uh, the question of 9-11 comes up, right? I mean, for many of us, it was a kind of either a life-defining or career-defining moment. So let's talk a little bit about where you were on 9-11. Was it kind of the one time you get a break from doing this long work is during a time when there's a dramatic paradigm shift in the way we do things in the world? Yeah, so from my perspective, I was in absolutely the worst place to be when 9-11 happened. And uh, I was definitely uh, on my heels like, like everyone else in, in the world. And uh, I was in a recruiting battalion, which meant my job was to lead recruiters and tell the Army story, which is a critical job. But for a time, I felt sorry for myself because I really wanted to be deployed. But as soon as I recognized that most of my recruiters felt the same way, there was a solidarity there. And uh, I continued to do what the Army asked me to do, which was lead a recruiting battalion. And over time, we did very well. Um, but that was a tough place to be. As I've said before, with all humility, I had the three skill sets that everyone was looking for. I had served in special operations. I was a human intelligence officer, and I had worked counterterrorism. And then I was in a recruiting command. Well, I can imagine being in a recruiting command after 9-11 was an important place to be with those skill sets because those are the kind of people that were, we were looking for. And you kind of had the experience where you could talk to these young people trying to come into the military, give them a little bit of an insight that some 
not to denigrate any officers who might have done supply or, or, or even, you know, uh, more combat arms centered things that like tankers. Right. We didn't need a lot of tanks in Afghanistan right off the bat. So you did have that skill set for what was needed at that time to be bringing into the army. That's exactly right. And at the time, we were looking for eight, 18 series, special forces, non-commissioned officers. And although I wasn't a special forces officer, many of my mentors, coaches, and, and the places I worked were filled with special forces uh, guys. And uh, I had an opportunity then to tell that story. And we put in more special forces, non-commissioned officers than any other recruiting battalion in the country, uh, at least from a uh, portion standpoint. Mm-hmm. So you eventually were able to uh, deploy to Afghanistan, and this is a little different than a lot of people's experiences, and and I think it's really interesting to talk about because you were working with special operations forces, but not as a special operator, as a a human provider. Uh, And I think that people have a misunderstanding even today, even though we've been doing this now for 17 years, particularly those people who come from a time period in the military or intelligence prior to 9-11, where there was always this very strict line of demarcation between the special operations community and the intelligence world. doesn't exist anymore, and this is really the beginning of this breakdown of this artificial line. Can you talk a little bit about what it meant to be doing human work for special operations forces? Yeah, I, it was a very interesting time. Uh, first of all, I went literally – I finished up the recruiting battalion on a Friday – and I'd been champing at the bit for, for a year and a half to, to get to Afghanistan. As I said, I was patient, but uh, nonetheless, I uh, was pulled into a task force in Afghanistan where I had an opportunity to work with special operations guys on the ground to do essentially what I call a rural cocktail party, which is conduct reconnaissance and surveillance operations. But really, the whole point of the mission was the work that I did. And it was the special operators that provided the support to that movement movement that provided the tactical expertise, but the actual work of conducting human, that was my job. They were literally the vehicle for making sure those operations were conducted securely. And we had already lost operators on these kinds of missions in places like Gardez, Afghanistan. Was this something that you could just step into and lead because it had been built up before? Or was this something that you had to kind of build back up from scratch? No, I think the concept of working in an interagency team, by the time I got to Afghanistan, had already been refined. And that's precisely how we work. We came together from multiple agencies to work on a small team with indigenous partners. We rehearsed together. We prepared together. And that template had already been established. We had been at work since virtually after 9-11, immediately in after 9-11. So... Uh, We came together as a team. The template was established. We worked together, and uh, essentially we picked up and uh, moved to the field, and we operated very successfully, I would argue. Let me ask you a little bit about operational issues because you talked about being successful, but the Afghans certainly had a say in this. And a lot of the reputation of the Afghans was that they were brilliant at – doing tactical warning intelligence, that they, it was very difficult to move around even as a special operations force without being observed from 20 different directions. How hard would it be to do human operations, to, to, to operate in that kind of environment when you you don't have the home field advantage? And in fact, where you are has had a home field advantage for centuries up until this point. How do you do human operations in an environment such as this? So we evolved tactically. For example, we operated from 
forward operating bases, we would go out, operate, and return. There were only a finite number of routes in in eastern Afghanistan, southeastern Afghanistan, to get back to your operating base. So simply put, a non-commissioned officer, a senior non-commissioned officer, a special operator, he designed one of the missions that uh, I was a part of. And rather than going out and returning to the operating base, our objective was to go out, sit with multiple tribal leaders for, for a week at a time, and never return back to the operating base. That was a simple change. In other words, sleep under the stars, have the protection of AC-130 gunships, but essentially sleep under the stars, be unpredictable, use different routes. As simple as that sounds, that helped counter the home field advantage that mm -hmm. the Afghans had. And they had already, with great effect, from from the Taliban perspective, they had already conducted successful ambushes, and we didn't want to... Uh, right be ambushed on our mission, certainly. So this might sound familiar to a lot of people out there who have operated in Afghanistan, but what, what were you doing that was different? Were you going out and talking to tribal leaders and digging wells and, and doing medical stuff, recruiting? That, that sounds like traditional special forces type stuff. But as a human operator, what were you bringing to the table? How were your operations different? Were you doing traditional human work out trying to recruit people to spy for us? It was traditional human work, but it was done in a unconventional way, which is using civil affairs, not using civil affairs, but being out and assessing what the community needs, doing viable things. But at the same time, my role is to look for that individual that uh, has access to, at the time, al-Qaeda senior leadership, uh, senior Taliban leadership, had information on bed-down locations where some of the people we were looking for were sleeping so we could put together an operation. So in essence, it was a rural cocktail party. That's mm -hmm. how I would characterize it. A, a big problem, as people may know, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's certainly a problem that continues today, are IEDs. Um, and you told me an operational story about an IED network that, that involved a lot of the tradecraft elements that we deal with here at the museum, where you had a Taliban walk-in, and essentially you were able to put together a tactical human team and take it from there. Can you walk us through that story? Because I think it's really, it's fascinating the way that you're taking what is traditionally taught at the agency and was done in Berlin in the 60s and bringing it to a very different environment in Afghanistan. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting story. A young walk-in, meaning a, a Taliban um, dissatisfied Taliban operator, if you will, uh, walked in one day and spoke to a tactical human team lead in a battalion and said, hey, I have information and I, I think that you, you will uh, be interested to counter a uh, Taliban plan to essentially explode IEDs and provide explosive devices and uh, attack some friendly military outfit that essentially is going to move into a valley in the middle of Afghanistan. And I have information on that because I helped to put together some of those components. And based on that, uh, we put together an operation by me beginning to assess this individual. And I assessed him as telling the truth. We shopped around some of this 
information to the rest of the intelligence community in Kabul, but we recognized we were positioned uh, to work with the Marine Corps unit that was moving into this valley. Uh, their leadership said we want to put together an operation to go after that network. Since we're moving into that valley, we want to go after that enemy network. We want to uh, obviously affect security right at the outset. So essentially, I was the senior guy. Uh, I worked with that young tactical human team lead, but uh, I began to handle this young source. And uh, essentially, we put together an operation by the numbers, which meant dress rehearsals, a full rehearsal, a, a sand table that was uh, laid out on the ground. We had AC-130 gunships to provide overwatch while we moved on to the objective. But before we did that, I took the source in a vehicle, a nondescript vehicle. We pinpointed the location in this village uh, to identify the bed down location and just to ensure that the network leader was in place. We identified him there. I believe we took some photographs, but that allowed us to finish the final planning for executing this operation. Let me, let me, before we get too far, because there's a interesting denouement to this story that we would certainly want to talk about. Let me let me go back a little bit and ask you about asset validation, because you 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 said you determined that he was telling the truth. Well, let's talk a little bit of how you did that. You don't have to get into specifics and sources and methods, but you have a walk in just like in any intelligence situation. You have to make sure it's not a dangle. You got to make sure it's not somebody trying to set you up. You know, back in the 60s in Berlin, it might be passing along disinformation in Afghanistan. It might be somebody setting you up to kill all of you. So how do you validate these assets? How do you know this walk-in is for real? Oh, great question. So it's never going to be 100%, but all the information added up. And he had said another event was going to happen on the Pakistan-Afghan border. And 24 hours, that's that event actually happened. And that reporting validated the fact that this individual had access and placement to information and uh, on what the enemy networks were doing. Based on that, based on the the precise information that he provided in his first person interaction uh, with the network, we thought that uh, it was too too uh, good to pass right. up. And so didn't the Marines. And they were, you know, the tough actors to sell, right? Because they had to put together mm -hmm. the operation. And it was their leadership based on all the intelligence that was laid out very objectively. It was the Marine Corps leadership that said, we want to take action and we want to do it right away. And it actually accelerated the timeline. And how did, how did this story wrap up? I mean, uh, clearly there were IDs or you would not be telling it in such a way. Uh, were there any problems associated with securing these IEDs? There were some problems, <laughs> and uh, it was mostly the excitement of executing a mission that was uh, done precisely according to plan, except for one small detail, and that is the uh, assault force went right to the objective. They secured the objective. They separated the women from the men, and they began their their field interview, their field interrogation, and they started recovering pieces of military gear on the actual compound, the objective. But what didn't occur is the uh, a smaller force didn't move to a location where the IED components were. So I made a decision, a snap decision, to move with with the uh, actual source just a few hundred meters to go to a barn where we knew those IED components were. And I went with somebody from another agency who was an EOD, an explosive ordnance expert, and we went into this barn where the source dug up 
where the IEDs were, and we found all the components. My instinct as a human officer was to immediately send the source away from that area because of the risk to him. Right. And uh, myself and an EOD guy, uh, with me helping him, we went through the components and I realized I was making a critical mistake. <laughs> what on earth was I doing there as a very senior human uh, officer, what was I doing with an EOD guy? I hadn't touched explosives since the 101st Airborne yeah. as an infantryman. But uh, a good lesson learned, uh, but it reinforces the instincts to, of an uh, agent handler, if you will. And the operation was successful, fortunately. Well, as long as your EOD guy is not running for his life and you're, you're pretty right. safe sitting in there. You talked several times about interagency cooperation, and you can think of all the, the ones that might be around, whether it's CIA or DIA or NSA. But you also have agencies that you don't necessarily consider kind of off the top of your head when you're thinking about intelligence work, and that's like something like the DEA. And you've told me a story also about working very closely with DEA operation, operations. And it's one of your more interesting stories also, which um, – at some point, I think we'll put some of the, the photos and the video online, but uh, you do have some interesting uh, assets to discuss here. So can you talk a little bit through working with these other agencies like the DEA? Yeah, so I went back to uh, – after my first deployment to Afghanistan, I went back to Central Command where I was a human branch chief, branch chief. And based on all that learning, based on what we observed was happening in Afghanistan, it was a very fragmented human system, if you will. There were lots of actors from not only the interagency but uh, also from f our foreign partners, our, our NATO allies that were running human intelligence operations for force protection, not only in Kabul but throughout Afghanistan. So we had to synchronize that work, essentially. We had to coordinate the source operations, and there was nobody to do that. So Lieutenant General Barno, he was in charge of um, combined forces Afghanistan at the time. He said he wanted a human capability, meaning a staff. So I went back to Afghanistan, and we hung a shingle. We said we were going to build a uh, what they call a, a C2X, a combined mm -hmm. human and counterintelligence capability. But General Barno said, Chris, I want you to also you're going to build process, but I want results. I want operational results here in Kabul. And with his backing, that's exactly what we, we brought to uh, General Barno. We hung a shingle and we said to everybody in the community to include the Drug Enforcement Administration, who we couldn't compel to share their sources with us, but uh, they were good actors and they said, we want to contribute, but you're going to have to demonstrate to us, Chris, that you're going to protect our sources and that there's going to be some positive effect. So everybody in the interagency uh, shared their sources for all intents and purposes. And uh, the DEA did the same. And it was a DEA source that had access to another IED cell, that information. And it was the DEA that came to us and said, can you help build an operation to go after this cell? Well, you talk about moving parts. The, the, think of a ballet almost because you have Canadians, Dutch, Norwegians, the DEA, your guys, all working together and trying to coordinate this operation uh, against this, you know, this potential cell. And Talk about Murphy's Law coming in. Uh, no, no perfect plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. 
but it was successful. Can you talk a little bit through kind of the planning behind this and how it ended up? Yeah, it's a great story. First of all, paths come back to recruiting. A actual general officer by the name of Les Fuller was over at NATO at the time working with the NATO forces. Actually, it was ISAF, uh, which stood for the International Security Augmentation Force, essentially NATO allies plus other partners. Mm -hmm. And general officer, he knew me. He had just left recruiting command. We had a long history. He was a special forces officer. And it was really up to ISAF to action the intelligence that we had. So I went to General Fuller and said, this is what we have. I brought our DEA counterparts to the table. And General Fuller said, listen, you guys do the planning. And he said to his international staff, whatever Chris wants, you guys deliver. He ordered pizza and we started doing detailed planning. Some of the best planning happens. Over pizza. Yeah. That's exactly right. We didn't have a whole lot of pizza on, on, on our compound, so it was a great place to be, but we had the support from General Fuller. While we put together an operation, so in this case, I wasn't on the ground. I essentially provided the command and control where I was connected with the DEA uh, agent uh, whose name was Tim Sellers. He recounted some of this in a book called uh, The Last Cowboy, I believe, uh, a tongue-in-cheek book on his experience in the DEA. But what wasn't tongue-in-cheek was how the operation played out on the ground on a Friday in Kabul. Let me ask you about that. You talked about you weren't on the ground and you, you told a lot of stories and you talked a lot about spending a lot of your career kind of in the mix where you are on the site, you are leading from the front. Sometimes, like in Bosnia, you probably shouldn't have been, or dealing with IEDs, perhaps not. <laughs> but this is a time when you decided not to be leading from the front. Is, is that psychologically so different that it's worth talking about? I mean, is there a, do you want to be there micromanaging, for lack of a better, pulling the strings? Or is it, at that point, are you like, okay, let's, they know what they're doing. Let's let them do this. Let me get out of the way. So all the military audience that would, would hear what I'm going to say would, may very well appreciate this. But there's a, um, there's a sort of a conventional wisdom that Napoleon used to be at the right place on the battlefield to affect an outcome. Similarly, all leaders at multiple levels have to go through and factor in where best should I be? And over time, you become a more mature leader, and then you figure out that it is better to be, in this case, providing the command and control so you can interact. In, in that case, in a very complex environment, I interacted with the Canadians, very capable uh, force that essentially was providing the command and control from ISAF headquarters, and uh, they were connected with Dutch Apache helicopters and a Norwegian quick reaction force. So a lot of moving parts, as you suggested. So really, it didn't take uh, a lot of wisdom on my part to know the place I needed to be was sitting with, with those actors in the headquarters. But also knowing what Tim Sellers and that team had to deal with, with the actual informant that they had, right. their source taking them up to the objective to pinpoint the would-be bomber that day. But I had to be the guy uh, to connect with, with that force, the connective tissue, if you will. Does having the 30,000-foot perspective help you to deal with Murphy a little bit better? Because you talked about the Norwegian QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, which unfortunately that day wasn't quick and wasn't reacting particularly well. I mean, it wasn't their fault. Murphy got in the way. They as you said, got stuck in traffic. 
and and then you were able to understand the situation and understand it well enough to actually give the final say to the people on the ground. Yeah, it was a tough situation to be in. And it really was a call that had to be made on the ground. And uh, Tim Sellers made a call. I don't know in hindsight what call I would have made, but his call was to literally get out of a vehicle, the safety of a vehicle and the security of a vehicle. If, if you can play this through your mind, what was happening at the time is a mosque had just let out. The biggest mosque in Kabul had just let out. There was absolutely Friday traffic like you'd see mm-hmm. in a major U.S. city. So there was a, a traffic um, uh, tie-up, and the Norwegians were quickly trying to get to that location and struggling to get to to uh, essentially to be there to make the apprehension of this would-be bomber that had, according to the reporting that we had, two kilograms of explosives. And Tim didn't know whether he was going to get on a bus and detonate. He didn't know what the intentions were of the bomber, so he made an operational call. The whole time I was talking to him and I was relaying to him that we had Apache helicopters above him, they could press on the crowd, but at the end of the day, you know, I was giving him periodic updates, uh, actually by second updates on where the Norwegians were. And uh, ultimately, Tim got out of the vehicle and decided, much to my surprise, to tackle the bomber. Or to tackle the guy. Tackle right, the guy. Know. That's exactly right. And you'll see, and uh, Tim had aired this, I think, with uh, a, a news network several years ago. It's quite dramatic. The Norwegians showed up. Uh, just seconds after Tim made a call to get out, tackle the bomber, and uh, the two kilograms of explosives were recovered. The the would-be bomber was apprehended. The important aspect of that is not only was the immediate problem solved because we didn't know what that guy was going to do on a bus. Mm-hmm. He was essentially getting on a bus and no one knew if he had a suicide vest. That wasn't popular to happen at the time in Kabul. So we just didn't know. There were a lot of intangibles. And I was talking to uh, Tim and trying to assess the situation, but ultimately he made a call. And uh, we were giving directions to the helicopters, talking to the Norwegians, and the Canadians were very coolly helping monitor that operation. And it played out very well, and we rolled into another 24-hour cycle where we executed multiple operations that um, occurred as a result of successful operation in Kabul that meant then the intelligence was good to go after that network. And we subsequently did with the Canadians, with the Irish, and other ISAF partners. And uh, it turned out a very positive outcome. So it sounds like this set a standard for working together with all these different disparate forces. Well, at the time, General Hilliard, uh, when I was getting ready to depart from from Kabul. He called me over and he said that the work that this CENTCOM crew did, the human work, the staff work, as well as putting together some of the operations, changed the threat paradigm in Kabul at the time. We went collectively on the offense and he was very appreciative of that. And he said to me, though, he said, Chris, success will only... uh, be judged by the ability to continue that work after you leave, the con- continuity of operations, which is the challenge that we've had for many years in Afghanistan and in Iraq, uh, candidly. 
Was this at the point where you retired from the army or are we still a bit away from that? Because soon thereafter, you were working as a, as a Navy civilian. That's right. In the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which is the Navy SEALs. So you can Google that all you want and find out what specific SEAL team we're talking about. I've been told by Chris not to say it. Um, but that's perfectly fine. You know what it is if you want to Google it very quickly. But that was that was after you had spent time in the Army. Yeah, so I finished up my career. So what I just described was when I was a very senior lieutenant colonel. I subsequently, after that last Afghan adventure, I subsequently deployed to Iraq to train Iraqis in reconnaissance and surveillance mm-hmm. and uh, very successful, very rewarding. And uh, it was a lot of fun as a very senior lieutenant colonel. I went to the Naval War College, and then I returned back to Central Command as the chief of human intelligence, as the chief of, of counterintelligence, and then spent some time building a task force for Special Operations Command Central, where I retired as a colonel. So after all of that learning, after all of the, um, the, the scars from making mistakes, and the experiences that I had, which were extremely rewarding, I had an opportunity to then, as a civilian, my first job leaving the Army was to spend time with Navy SEALs and try to apply some of that learning and try to share that in a community that uh, is very receptive to, to uh, trying new approaches. And uh, that's exactly what I found when I got to uh, Dam Neck in Virginia Beach. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, I can honestly say that when when we had just first heard about you and didn't know a whole lot of your background when you were still working at a job we'll talk about in a little bit, um, the most over-the-top praise we got of your background was strange, in my opinion. As a former Army guy uh, who understands the rivalry, certainly between the Army and the other services, in particular the Special Operations Forces between SF and the SEALs, all the former SEALs had nothing but good things to say. And that, to me, and I even said this to uh, the, the leadership at the museum, was, well, that's as good as it gets. If you've got SEALs saying a former Army, especially if you've got SEAL NCOs saying that a former Army officer had his, his act together, that, that's pretty significant. How were you able to walk in there and prove your mettle to a bunch of operators like the SEALs who say what you want about them? They certainly know their, their shit. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, it would be very different I would think in a special forces operation where being former army is kind of a plus in this case, uh, it was, it blew my mind. Uh, and, and maybe I'm just being naive and maybe I just don't know any better, but you, I, I think you don't see that very often. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that uh, I'm flattered and uh, it was a very rewarding experience. I came to the command with some bona fides, 
some bona fides, having worked with operators on the ground in Bosnia, and then some bad experiences, as I said, casualties in Afghanistan as an army officer, again, working with SEALs in the field. So I had field experience, on-the-ground experience, so they had an opportunity to see me perform in a combat environment. So I, I came to the command with that experience, but I like to tell people that said that's very curious that an army officer could have worked in a SEAL command. But I will say that the secret to that success was walking in and making it very clear by your actions that you're not competing with anyone. I did not want to be a SEAL and nobody there wanted to be like me. In that blending of a little humility and sharing the lessons that you've learned went a long way and it worked for me for six years and it was the happiest mm -hmm. you know time of my life in some ways because I was very actualized I was working with great folks traveling with them and I had a chance to be a coach mentor and I was learning a lot from them and uh, the learning just continued while I was there but it was a very rewarding experience was it hard to have to speak in really little words for them <laughs> to understand I, mean, I won't never mind um, so you took that experience and brought it with you to SOCOM, Special Operations Command, where you spent a year in the operations directorate. And this is this is truly where we can talk about multi-branch operations working with civilian agencies. Was this the most put together operation that you had seen in your career of being at this kind of really 30,000 foot level of not only multi-branch, not only, you know, working with special forces and para-jumpers and rain raiders, but also working hand-to-hand -hand with the civilian intelligence agencies and even like CIA paramilitary. So, again, very luckily, all of that learning converged and there was a confluence of that in a place and time when I ended up at SOCOM. But I was asked, candidly, I was asked to do a business turnaround, essentially. Apply all that you've learned about leadership and turn a program around. And I won't talk a lot about mm -hmm. that. Suffice to say, working in a four-star headquarters helped serve me later the rest of the narrative as right. a policymaker. So it was a great place to be because it was my first time really working policy issues from a combatant command, right. from a four-star headquarters, and working with the Pentagon and trying to cross and bridge a policy divide in many cases. So uh, there was a lot of experience that I had in that one year that was put to good use when I showed up at my next job, which I think we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great stepping stone for your last government job as the special assistant to the president and senior director of counterterrorism for the National Security Council, uh, which this is a real full circle job. I mean, if you think back to the beginning of your career, when you're a second lieutenant with 101st as a, a, a recon platoon commander, and now you are essentially the top guy on counterterrorism for the entire United States government, and you're working a few steps away from the Oval Office. How much did you think about being a second lieutenant? How much did you kind of re reflect back on the time when you were the collector of intelligence when you're now the policymaker? So all the study, all the leadership, all the scarring really just served me so very well when I showed up at the National Security Council. I never forgot what I had learned as a second lieutenant, what I learned from my non-commissioned officers, those principles applied. So I didn't surrender basic leadership, and that's what I fell back on first. 
build your team. That was my number one objective. First of all, not to alienate those folks that worked previously in the other administration. Everyone was to be trusted as long as they didn't break trust with me. It was to build a world-class team. And that's what my first priority was, to communicate as much as I could to my team, to bring them into the fold, to not surrender all of those leadership lessons I had learned. That's what I did in those early days. And I literally rolled in to the White House on inauguration day. There was no handbook. It was the most important job in Washington, D.C., said my predecessor. She told me, and I had tremendous respect for for my predecessor. She said, Chris, this is the most important job in Washington, D.C. And I thought maybe that was hyperbolic. There was a lot of exaggeration there. But when I saw what we did insofar as dealing with real threat streams day in and day out, my predecessors, three or four removed, had been dealing with threat streams and making sure that we mitigated those threats. All of that happens at the interagency level to make sure everybody has a voice, but not that we're just talking about intelligence, but we're actioning that intelligence, mm-hmm. meaning that there is some policy um, outcome that we're giving some direction from the White House. We can ask key and critical questions, and it's the IC, the intelligence community, answers those questions. So to answer your question directly, to go from a collector, from a guy that was a young lieutenant, to all of a sudden be a policymaker, that was a gift. But at the same token, all of that study helped me because I knew that I can't ask my intel analyst what to do. That's my job to figure out what the policy outcome is. Their job is to educate me and inform me. And I have to tell you, that was the most rewarding, besides my team itself, the most rewarding aspect of that job is having intelligence professionals, briefers every day, informing me. When I ask a question, that I see that intelligence community responds with products that inform me so I can make the right recommendations to my principals and ultimately to the president Mm -hmm. to give the president the right options that are based on sound intelligence. That is extremely rewarding. So you had your own team, kind of your own fiefdom focus on counterterrorism, but you don't, other than on tactical and operational issues, you don't really get to operate in a vacuum. You're operating as part of the larger national policy, you know, which CT is just one of one directorate within the National Security Council, and you've got geographical ones, you've got like counterproliferation and other things like that too. But all of these are coming together to serve national policy. So how much was your job focused on looking down at the day-to-day counterterrorism operations? And how much of your job was looking up at understanding how you fit in with the broader national strategy? Well, remember, Vince, when you were asking me about the psychology of, of, of a leader wanting to be on the battlefield, wanting to be leading from the front, we had, to, we had to eschew all that. We had to back away from all of that and have altitude because we were the National Security Council. And there was some criticism of past administrations, and I don't like to criticize past administrations. I'll be judged someday. Um, but we came in. With, with this NSC, with the recognition that we weren't going to get into tactical details. So all of those experiences of wanting to focus on the battlefield, um, I've 
avoided all of that and started asking the key and critical questions that are strategic, that uh, are are the bigger picture questions. That's what we focused on at the NSC with regard to counterterrorism policy. But some outcomes are very tactical. So there were times we were accused of being too tactical. I sought the balance and we, we asked ourselves quite frequently, are we too far in the weeds? We were very self-critical within the counterterrorism directorate. And uh, similarly on the issues that we worked with regard to hostages. How hard was it? Because when you came in in January of 2017, how hard was it to not get tunnel vision on ISIS? Because ISIS was what everyone was talking about in the United States. Well, the lone wolf attacks that were attributed to ISIS or inspired by ISIS. How much effort did it take to say, let's take a step back. Let's understand Al Qaeda still exists, Boko Haram. And then non-Islamic terrorist organizations, domestic groups, all the things that kind of go together to the big picture of terrorism. Was there a concerted effort to make sure that you didn't kind of get the flavor of the month and just get fixated on one group versus another? We we reassessed our priorities constantly. We de- redefined our objectives. We were very deliberate in what our policy priorities were, uh, given my interactions with the principals. We knew that ISIS was first and foremost our number one counterterrorism priority. But going hand in glove with that were things like the threat to aviation, which weren't just focused on ISIS in particular. But you remember Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. They had the capability to down aircraft. In fact, the first casualty the United States suffered under the Trump administration was a SEAL, was a SEAL. Um, in a raid against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. We were very much focused still on al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda and their affiliates, branches of al-Qaeda, al-Shabaab and their relationship to ISIS, which was developing. It was nascent, but it was developing. We were very much concerned about Hezbollah. So we were not laser focused on ISIS. We couldn't afford to be. Our team was focused really on the entire waterfront. Last week, you talked about one of your first real experiences with terrorism. Well, two of experiences. One was Oklahoma City and the other finding out that right wing militias had thought about or at least attempted to attack a special operations training run in Michigan. How much time was spent looking on the domestic side of the kind of the non-Islamic side? Was that something that you made sure to at least keep a focus on? Yeah, that's a great question. Of, of course, Charlottesville happened while, while I was uh, leading the counterterrorism directorate. And I think in the case of Charlottesville, in the case of domestic attacks, uh, we believe that the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, they do a very good job focusing their investigative efforts on uh, domestic terrorism and the laws that we have that the that handle uh, attacks like 
Charlottesville, although there'll be some question, should should uh, legislation be a cha- change to or should we use uh, other federal statutes in the case of Charlottesville? The bottom line is that debate emerged in the aftermath of Charlottesville, but everyone recognized that the FBI was in a uh, very well positioned to do an investigation and then proceed with the with a prosecution. So domestically, our time was focused on our priority threat, which is really ISIS and the homegrown violent extremism extremists who are going to be animated by ISIS propaganda. That was our singular focus. I was very confident that the FBI and Homeland Security was doing a uh, very good work as far as investigations of the right wing. Let me push back a little bit just to kind of see what your feelings are on this, because it sounds like the FBI and DHS are fully funded and and capable of dealing with non-Islamic crazy white guy domestic terrorists, but not with an ISIS wannabe or a uh, like-minded Al-Qaeda person. And it seems like they're very similar situations. They're both extremists. Yes, there's a different religious bent or a different motivation behind it. But in both cases, it seems like a double standard from the outside. You talked about Charlottesville, and I'm actually very happy you brought that up because I hadn't heard anyone from the administration or formerly of the administration use the word terrorism in respect to what happened in Charlottesville. And then you have things where there are people going and shooting up schools. And again, I'm not trying to give a political agenda to this. Forget the anti-gun stuff. That's not the agenda that we're talking about here. But how do we determine or how much influence did you have to determine what was labeled terrorism? What? Because you say the, the boy was a very troubled young man and he had some kind of psychological issues. Usually that's done when he's a middle-class white kid and not a middle-class Muslim kid. The Muslim kid is a terrorist and the white kid is some kind of needs some mental health work. And you see that it's not new. It's not Trump administration stuff. This is not this is going on for a long, long time now. Was there a role of counterterrorism within the NSC to talk about how we define terrorists, how we are understanding this big, broad umbrella issue of what makes a terrorist and what doesn't? Yeah, I think some of that debate. Again, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, many use the word terrorism, domestic terrorism, and there's a nuance there. Mm -hmm. And the nuance really has to do with statutes. And we spent our time making sure we educated our principals to ensure that they understood why this wasn't terrorism or how it was classified. And uh, it was a matter of, of definitions. And at the end of the day, it's the Department of justice it's going to determine how it's going to be handled within the criminal justice system. Um, but our principal focus in my first year of the administration was homegrown violent extremism because of that nexus with ISIS overseas, where our intelligence community, it, all of those resources, National Counterterrorism Center, um, as well as the entire interagency is focused on all of that intelligence to assess where there's a nexus mm-hmm. with ISIS overseas. Maybe this is confusing to me because it seems like we've been kind of making stuff up as we've gone along, it, you know, for, it's not just recently for the last almost decade. And if I'm not mistaken, we haven't really had a written national counterterrorism strategy f- since, what, 2010, 2011? 
maybe that's the root of some of the problems of kind of how we deal with this in a national sense? No, so that's a great question. And uh, there was just an article written, where is the counterterrorism strategy? It's got to be debated. It's got to be discussed. There's got to be interagency consensus. And if you want to see what the counterterrorism strategy is, look at how it counterterrorism was prosecuted this last year. First of all, it was prosecuted deliberately with a buy with and through campaign that defeated ISIS in the physical caliphate. That was the first priority. Also, we've put counterterrorism pressure on our adversaries in places like Libya and North Africa and with al-Shabaab uh, and some of the ISIS affiliates that are, are um, coming into play now in Somalia. So I think that you can assess where we have come. It is almost redundant to publish a counterterrorism strategy. I think that uh, there's one forthcoming. But Candidly, after the national security strategy defined what our priorities were and did so very, very assiduously, you know, very well, in my humble opinion, I think that uh, a counterterrorism strategy is important to for public consumption, clearly, but it's played out on the ground for the last year. We also have to be careful how much we want to telegraph right. to our adversaries. And that's been a theme of the administration. I don't know when the counterterrorism strategy is going to be published, if at all. Uh, I, I suspect it will in, in the near term. But I, I will tell you that that's just going to be a very surface document because the real work is going to be done with the interagency, and much of that work is going to be classified. It's not going to be advertised. And that might be a different approach from past administrations. To be perfectly honest, and, and, and I don't mean to be uh, kind of snarky in this case. I'm not trying to be. Um, but a legitimate question. It sounds to me like we succeeded in the last year of killing the hell out of a lot of terrorists. Is there a strategy beyond that? Is there, I understand that is a counter-terrorism strategy, right? Kill the bad guys. Is there a prevent terrorism strategy? Is there a get at the deeper roots? I mean, maybe that's a broader diplomatic question. Maybe that's a foreign aid question. Maybe that's a CVE question. Is that part of the conversation at the NSC uh, about, okay, once these terrorists are formed, we're very good at killing a lot of them. But how do we, how do we prevent Number one, new ones from popping up, the next ISIS from coming around that we have to go fight. Or number two, how do we prevent when we kill one, creating 10? So let me answer that by saying some of the broader strategies, the regional strategies, are going to get to some of the social fabric issues just by aligning our partners against the real adversaries. That alignment, an Arab bloc, for example, that counters malign Iranian influence, the, the the countering of proxies in Yemen, the countering of Hezbollah. This administration, the current administration, has rolled out some policy prescriptions for countering Hezbollah, which are more harsh than previous administrations. And we've put some terrorists on notice. We've taken some concrete actions with the rewards for justice Maybe not far enough, but we also have to always be mindful of the law of unintended consequences, which means being very deliberate in our approach. But I think our regional strategies, for example, the great work 
more to follow, right, in the future, the great work that uh, we've done with the Saudis, some of the partnerships where the Saudis have taken it upon themselves, for example, to do some major social changes underway. We'll see. The jury is still out. But I suspect uh, that the Saudis... Uh, with their social changes, what they're doing with women on the ground in Saudi Arabia, some of the changes with regard to their approaches to enforcing uh, religious dictums, some of those changes are going to have possible uh, positive outcomes for how we handle counterterrorism long term. So that alignment is still ha- happening. The administration is relatively young, but also the Saudis have started countering some of that malign mal- uh, messaging. Saudi voices speaking out against extremism. So I think the jury is still out, but they're also doing some work regarding terrorist financing. Um, that is also playing out. We'll see. But I, I think some of the regional strategies are going to get to some of those causes. But we're not going to solve the United States independently right. is not going to solve social fabric issues. We're just not going to do that. And that was not our top priority because our priority was putting the enemy on their heels so that we didn't have downed airplanes, so that we didn't have communications intact um, in a uh, in a Syrian environment that we could affect the media, for example, because we knew that propaganda was in turn going to affect uh, some in-betweeners, if you will, in quotes, people that were sitting on the fence that wanted to take action. And if they're motivated by the enemy's propaganda, they're going to act. And uh, we needed to affect the enemy in an away game. And that still is playing out, although some people think that's a tired cliche. We wanted to focus on the enemy overseas first. And then we could focus on some of those CVE efforts longer term. Do you miss it? I mean, you've got your collar open. There's no tie. You've got a couple, maybe a day's growth of beard going on. But you're not getting your... CIA briefings every morning and you're getting the news like the rest of us watching, uh, you know, whether the New York Times or CNN. Is it hard now? You've been in the government, whether it's the military, the civilian world for your entire adult life. And you've had, what, two and a half months of being out. How's the transition been? Has it been tough? It's been a little challenging on some days only because I truly miss the people at the NSC, the quiet professionals day in and day out working 18 hours a day that are trying to deliver the right options for the president president of the United States. And they're coming from the interagency. These are truly career professionals. And the team I had is as good as any other team that I've ever worked with in my entire career. And I miss them as human beings, seeing them every day under stress, but delivering. On the other hand, I've come to a great team at the International Spy Museum, and I really enjoy being challenged in different ways like this forum itself. Doing podcasts is not something I'm used to, but it's very cathartic to be able to tell the story, the the real story, the true story of the national security bureaucracy and how it plays out day in and day out. So I miss the people. I miss going to work at the most recognizable 
address on the planet on some days. But I enjoy very much being able to tell the story. I enjoy walking into a classroom where there are a bunch of little kids that are interested in hearing me tell a story uh, to them about what it's like to be an intelligence officer and to see them animated, animated by intelligence history. And they're learning and they don't even realize it. They're they're learning fun things like secret writing Mm -hmm. and uh, they're talking about it and then they're they're going back and telling their parents about what they learned about not just spying, but the American Revolution. That's magic to see it play out. So it's very rewarding to be here. And everyone has a time in the saddle. And my time now is to tell the story from the context of being at the museum, working with you, Vince, as the historian, schooling me in uh, the history of espionage, and at the same time being able to offer some some opinions based on experience uh, as a uh, practitioner. It's very rewarding. So it's a fun place to be. But I miss my team, but I'm building new relationships here at the museum. Well, we're going to give you every opportunity to talk to kids and adults and everyone else as we move forward. And I imagine we're going to have you a couple more times on SpyCast also in the next couple of years. So Chris Costa is a new executive director of the International Spy Museum. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. And if you are local, uh, you're going to be talking to an audience in April something or other. What is it? April 12th. April 12th. So uh, about a week and change when this one is going to post for the first time. So come get a chance to say hello to Chris. Uh, get a chance to tell some stories like we've done in the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks, Vince. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, all. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to CyberWire.com survey. That's CyberWire.com survey to share your feedback now.